This mini-lecture is about rules and procedures. In our mini-lecture about starting school, um, I told you that you need to get your rules and procedures. Uh, you need to start teaching them on the very first day, and you need to get your major rules and procedures locked in place from day one. You start teaching them. Now we're going to look at what are good rules and procedures, how do you develop them, what do you need to cover, how do you word them, what are good rules, what are good procedures, and what are not good rules and procedures. Okay, rules and procedures. If you want your classroom to run well, then you're going to have to develop and implement clear rules, clear rules, firm rules, and set procedures. Um, procedures, set procedures are actually very, very helpful in the classroom. Sometimes teachers, particularly beginning teachers, get the idea, well, you want a flexible, creative, uh, freewheeling room. That is not what you want. You want novelty and creativity and inspiration in the content of your instruction, what your instruction is about. You don't want con you know, creativity, flexibility, novelty from day to day in how you pass out materials, how you take up assignments. You want to routinize those things. You do not want to experiment and explore routine procedures every day. Think of brushing your teeth. You want to routinize it. You don't want to think about it. And you don't want to be creative from day to day in how you brush your teeth. Okay, same thing in a classroom. You need those set procedures if you want a well-run classroom. Now, the main test for a rule, any rule, Take, should take this test to tell you how important it is. Does it promote learning? Now, there's some rules that you need to have and need to enforce that don't promote learning, but if it's an important rule, it promotes learning. Here's an example. No gum chewing. Very common rule. You'll find it in probably in most schools. Well, it's a legitimate school rule. If it's a school rule, you need to enforce it. It is usually not directly related to learning. I did have a Spanish teacher tell me that no gum chewing in her class was related to learning because students needed to be able to speak clearly. But generally, uh, whether you have gum in your mouth or not does not affect the, affect the functioning of your brain. I don't think. You may look stupid, but, you know, chewing like a cow. But your brain's still working. You can still learn, okay? not directly related to learning. It may be related to behavior, and behavior is related to learning. Uh, gum is just a really prime material for various sorts of uh, crimes and misdemeanors. But the more likely reason you have to enforce it, it's not worth a lot of time, but the reason you have to enforce it is because it does so much damage to furniture and floors and school facilities, not to mention that it's gross, it gets on the floor, it gets on your shoes, it gets on your clothes. So you do have to enforce it. It's a school rule, it's a legitimate rule. It's not a worth a lot of time. For example, 
if you're teaching and you see on the back row a kid chewing gum, I will maintain that if you stop your instruction, call on that child, have him stand up, walk to the trash can, do this slow death march to the trash can over there, spit out the gum, and do the slow death march back and sit down, that you're wasting instructional time, you're interrupting your student's train of thought, you're getting them off the subject briefly, but definitely, and you may actually, during that long death march, create the, the condition under which certain kinds of off-task behavior and misbehavior, such as talking and, and uh, goofing off, start. So I would suggest that that rule is not worth interrupting your instruction for. You simply wait till the right time. And it may be as the kid is passing out of class and you say to him, I saw the gum, put it in the trash can right now, and I want you to do that again, do you understand me? Okay, thank you very much. All right? So you enforce the rule, but it's not worth a whole lot of time and attention. Now, another example. Rules for behavior in halls, restrooms, commons, and outside the building. Not in your classroom. Okay, what are those rules worth? They not, may not seem too important. I mean, after all, you're in your classroom, and that's what's most important and you want to teach, and, and the rules for the restrooms down the hall and out in the hall may seem like they don't have anything to do with you, but they do. Those rules affect the behavior and mood level that will spill over in your room. Whatever kind of horseplay and goofing around or anger, belligerence, aggression, whatever gets started out there will spill into your room and it will negatively energize and disrupt your instruction. It may seem like somebody else's responsibility. Well, the assistant principal patrols the halls. He can deal with, you know, the behavior in the hall. Or, those are not my students, those are her students. And, you know, not my responsibility. But, if all school personnel don't work together to actively enforce and monitor all student behavior, everyone suffers. In a really good school, all the teachers understand that they are all responsible for monitoring the behavior of all students, enforcing all school rules, and getting compliance anywhere they go or happen to be. In a good school, teachers also take an active role in monitoring the halls right outside their classroom or uh, areas that they're responsible for, such as the shop, the gym, the art room, okay? We're all in this boat together, and student misbehavior affects all of us negatively. Now, there are two types of rules. The first is general rules that cover broad categories of behaviors, and people call these rules. These are my classroom rules. Second is smaller rules that are often called procedures and routines. How we pass up our work from the back of each row of desks is a routine or a procedure. And it's no big deal, but there's a right way to do it. You in this class, whatever you want. In my class, um, 
Do not fold the paper. Simply leave it flat. Pass it up from the back. And you just put your paper on top of the one that gets passed up to you. And then I take them up across the rows this way. And I've got my papers stacked. If your uh, homework, whatever it is, has more than one paper, you know, more than one sheet, I don't want you to staple them. Or I do want you to staple them. Whatever is your procedure in your classroom, and you have the right to some flexibility. You want them stapled so you can keep them together. You don't want them stapled because the staples tend to cap. Whatever. Your procedure, as, as long as it's reasonable, that's the way you want it done, and you lock it into place. Now, rules for rules. General rules, those big rules, those five rules that teachers always like to put on the poster board on the wall, and then the question is, do they actually refer to them and enforce them on a consistent basis? Rules for rules. Many people suggest four to six. There's nothing absolute about that. I've seen teachers with 10. I've seen teachers with two. Generally, you can cover the big areas in four to six well-crafted general rules. If you have eight, okay. If you have 10, okay. If you have 22, I'm going to say why. Four to six, big rules, well-written, generally are what you need. They need to cover lots of important behaviors. If you've only got four to six, you, those general rules need to cover a lot of territory, and they need to cover important areas, and yet be very specific. And I get to ask, you know, how can you have these general rules that cover a lot of territory, and yet be very specific? Well, I'll show you some examples, and we'll see what that means. Need to be real clear and they need to be taught to students. Backing up to the mini lecture on starting school, remember we don't tell students what our rules are. We teach them. They have to be very clear, very specific, and we teach students what those rules mean and how to follow them. All right, here's an example. Treat everyone with respect. This is a very common rule. You can go in lots of classrooms, and this probably is one of the most common rules that will be on that poster board on the wall. Treat everyone with respect. It's a really lousy rule. Now, if you've got that on your room, you know, on the poster in your room, that's okay. You don't have to take it down. But just all by itself, it's a lousy rule because it is so vague. What does it mean to teach every to treat everyone with respect? And again, middle class teachers will tell me, well, that's obvious. And one of the most uh, frequent things they say when I say, what you know, what's respect going to be in the classroom? They say, well, don't talk when other people are talking. That is better. That's getting to where we want to go. Not treat everyone with respect. Don't talk when other people are talking. Well, which other people? When? What do you mean? How do you make a bid for a turn to talk? But we're still getting in the, in the better direction. No talking when other people are talking. Are we, do we really mean don't talk when the teacher is teaching? Do we mean, what do we mean? Okay, but 
treat everyone with respect. If you're going to have a rule like this, just because you feel so strongly about it, it's okay with me. But you need to spend a lot of time up front at the beginning of the year explaining this to students and teaching them what you mean when you say treat everyone with respect. I would suggest if you've got this rule that you supplement supplement it with a poster somewhere else that says examples of treating people with respect. Listen when another student is talking. Don't talk when the teacher is something like that so you really define and help kids understand what respect is. A test for rules. Can both the teacher and student identify exactly what is and it is not compliance with this rule? Um, again, middle class teachers will fre frequently tell me treating other people with respect means not talking when other people are talking. And then I ask students, how many of you come from homes in which all the members are polite and take turns talking? And in a class of 30 students, maybe three hands go up. There are families like that in which people are polite, they have civil conversations, and they take turns, uh, for example, at the dinner table, talking. Then I say, all right, how many of you come from families where everybody talks as best they can? If you want to be heard, you need to jump in there. And the rest of the hands go up. Most families have a pretty uh, high level of verbal give and take. And at the dinner table, people will talk, you know, chat, all kinds of multiple conversations will be going on. And uh, in my family, the rule was, you know, there are usually like three conversations going on, six people. The rule was you could participate in any or all of those conversations at the same time. Take a child from that kind of home, put him in your kindergarten class, Tell him to treat other people with respect without teaching him that in this class it means don't talk when other people are talking, don't talk when the teacher is teaching, don't talk, uh, don't blurt out answers, raise your hand. You can put the child in a really desperate situation where he really doesn't know how to comply with your rule. He thinks he's treating you respectfully, it's what he does at home. Okay, can both teacher and student identify exactly what is and is not compliance with this rule? Examples, no talking, that's a rule. Uh, it's a pretty bad rule. No talking ever, I can't talk in this class ever. All right, here's a better version. No talking except when the activity requires talking or the teacher gives permission. Come to class prepared. What does that mean? Is being prepared in this class the same as being prepared in the class next door? Is being prepared in English the same as being prepared in home economics? Is being prepared in third grade the same as being prepared for class in second grade? What do you mean? Okay, what is prepared? Here's a good example. 
All right, come to class every day with book, notebook, paper, sharpened pencil, and homework. That's prepared for class in my class. That's our rule. Here's a rule that Lee Cantor recommends, and I think it's a good one because it talk about covering a lot of territory. Follow directions the first time given. Think about how much territory that covers. Follow directions. Do what I tell you to do. First time. Follow directions first time given. If you don't understand, don't squeak and fuss, scream and yell, don't lie down, don't stop working. If you don't understand the directions, raise your hand. Depending on your students, you may say, quietly raise your hand without making noise. Make sure I see you. Put your hand down, go back to work and I will come help you when I can. You know, again, depending on your students, you may have to be more or less specific. But let's get in there and let's have a rule that says, follow directions first time given. If you don't understand, raise your hand and ask for help. Be ready to start class when the tardy bell rings. When? It's, it, you know, just doubtful. Be, it's not doubtful. Be in your seat. Now, when the tardy bell rings, you need to be in your seat. And on the first day of class, we need to have, may need to have a discussion about what in your seat means. It means in your seat, seated in your seat, your seat seated in your seat. It does not mean standing in front of your seat with your finger on the top of the desk. It does not mean with your feet in your seat, crunched up on the top. It does not be in your seat. When the tardy bell rings, quiet with the day's materials. And you know, I tell you that each day before, you know, bring this, bring this, bring this, and be ready to begin work. Or in my class, the day is art class, day's materials are always in the middle of the table and you reach over and pick up your set and put them in front of you. That's a procedure. This is the rule. When we enter the room, you know, we're five years old. When we enter the room, we go to our own special cubby, which was assigned to us, and we put up our coat on the hook. We don't dump it down in the bottom. We put our lunch on the top shelf, and anything we've brought to share, we put on the bottom shelf, which incidentally keeps those little toys away from them while they're doing other things. Put those on the bottom shelf. Now, common areas for general rules. Following directions. I mentioned uh, Lee Kenner's follow directions first time given. It covers a lot of ground. Beginning and ending class. I've mentioned in a previous mini lecture, beginning class well. 
is a very powerful thing for making your whole instructional segment run well. How the class begins is the most important part of the class. So you might want some really good rules and some really good procedures for how to start class. Start it just as fast as possible. You also need really good procedures for the end of class. I've already mentioned the fact that ends of instructional segments come apart. They fall apart and important stuff gets lost like homework, review, what we're going to do for tomorrow, and all sorts of things go on at the end of class. So good, good rules for beginning and ending class. What to do when the teacher is teaching? Um, I like expectations such as face the front, look at me. Uh, some teachers don't insist on that. That's okay. You can set up your own rules. Uh, sh uh, kids can pay attention while not looking at you. If I were teaching students with some problems, I might require them to look at me when I'm teaching. Um, you know, whatever makes sense and enables you to teach. Noise levels. A common technique around uh, this area is when the noise level is too high in a classroom, uh, let's say we're doing group work, the teacher flicks the light. Well, there might need to be some additional statements. If I do that and the noise doesn't go down, then something else will happen. What about noise levels? We have uh, teachers of younger children do a lot about inside voices, outside voices. Uh, some teachers use like red light, green light warning systems. Doesn't matter. What's the rule about noise level? If you're talking to your friend and I can hear you, hear what you're saying, you're too loud. Okay, noise levels. Behavior during seat work. I do allow collaboration during seat work. I do not allow collaboration during seat work. Or I tell you whether collaboration is allowed during seat work. Whatever, my rules. Student interactions. A very common rule is some version of keep your hands to yourself, okay? Uh, leave alone other people's uh, bodies and possessions. Don't, you know, don't poke, shove, steal, take, meh, meh, meh. Interpersonal interactions. Little bitties, we do not hit. Uh, we use our words. We do not hit. In and out of seat. When should you be in your seat? And when is it permissible to be out of seat? For example, some teachers have a rule that says only one person on the floor at a time. If you need to sharpen your pencil, you look around. Nobody else is standing up. You can get up and go sharpen your pencil and go straight back to your desk. So whatever. What's the rule for in and out of the seat? Asking and answering questions. If I want to ask a question or answer a question, what do I do? And how do I raise that hand? And how do I be recognized? Attention. How do you get the teacher's attention? Um, when she is working with another group, can you go up and interrupt her? Or 
Do you need to put your name on the board under the help column? What do you do? How do you get the teacher's attention? Procedures. Now, these are the little bitty rules, just kind of how we do stuff. Uh, they need to be very specific. Always be neat and tidy. Well, that's a, a terrible procedure. What's neat and tidy? Try explaining to a six-year-old boy what's neat and tidy. Try explaining to an 18-year-old boy what's neat and tidy. Okay? Now, here's procedure for tests. Notice how specific this is. For tests in my classroom, remove all books, notebooks, and papers from your desk. All books, notebooks, and papers from your desk. Put them on the rack under your desk so that no notes can be seen. And I'm going to come around and check that because I'm going to be circulating during the test. Have a pen or sharp pencil ready. I don't care what you write with. Now, some teachers may care what you write with. In this math class, I may require pencil only. If you've forgotten pen or pencil, take one from the lost and found box before class starts. You need to do that before you sit down. If you need your own paper, I'll tell you so and how much. Three sheets. Once I begin giving out the test, there must be no talking until everyone is finished. Now, this is a pretty good procedure for tests. Um, in my college classroom, I might add something like no caps, no hats. So you can't write your answers under your hat, okay? No, I, I might actually even get more detail these no, days. No PDA, no cell phone, no, okay? I'm going to take a test. Now, consistent enforcement. Most teachers, even beginning teachers, can tell you, oh, you have to, re reinforce, you have to enforce rules consistently. That's very important. That is correct. And then you watch them in the classroom, and they're not consistent. Consistent enforcement means every time. I ask students in a classroom at the beginning of a year, you're a student looking for ways to create havoc. Uh, you're what Carolyn Evertson calls a gap shooter. You're looking for holes in the system so you can shoot through it and have a lot of fun. How many times do you need to see a teacher not enforce a rule before you, and generally the other students too, understand that it's not really a rule? The answer is twice. You see it not enforced the first time, the gap shooter sits back and he goes, hey, what was that? You see it not enforced the second time, he says, and all of his uh, other students say, say, oh, it's not a rule, okay? Consistent enforcement means every time. Every child, every student, consistent enfor enforcement means every time, every child. No exceptions except under very unusual and compelling students. Uh, circumstances and generally students they may not like it and they may actually complain but sometimes they can understand some exceptions this child has a specific health impairment therefore a certain rule he does not follow um, 
you complain, fine, you can do this too. Uh, get the proper documentation from your physician and have your parents file it with the school nurse or what it, you know, whatever the school's procedure is. But generally, every child, every time, no exceptions. Kids understand exceptions for some special situations, but there's a lot of inconsistency that they don't understand. They hate favoritism. Now, you ask the average teacher, do you play favorites? And they'll say, no, no, not me. And uh, yes, we do. And it's real, care it's real bad. We need to be careful. Problem students resent rules not being enforced for other students who are charming, popular, obedient, socially adept, smart, hardworking. Okay? Teachers tend to discriminate in favor of students who are cooperative, positive, reinforcing to the teacher. And I always ask my students, you know, how many of you, when you were in school, were known as a good, well-behaved students? And all the little hands go up. Most, most of my students, there are a few who are not. And then I say, how many of you got away with murder in high school because you were a good, well-behaved student? And all the hands go up. And I ask them, what are you talking about? Well, uh, we were on the, I was a cheerleader. And so uh, I would just say I needed to go do something for the cheerleading sponsor, and I'd just get out and go up and down the halls, okay? Or uh, we were part of the yearbook, and we just sat around, and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd get out, we'd do whatever. Students who fit those characteristics, smart, charming, whatever, frequently are allowed to get away with things. The odd thing, uh, not odd thing, but the, the difficult thing is the problem student, and he is a problem. He breaks rules, he's sassy, he, he gets in trouble all the time, sits there and he watches you allow those students to break rules. And he doesn't sit there and say, well, you know, I'm just getting what I deserve because I'm a, a problem student. He feels very, very put out, very, very unfairly treated. He also knows some things you don't know. He knows that when you allow that good student to violate your rule about not leaving class to go to the bathroom, he knows she just wants to get out of class to go smoke. You don't know she smokes. He does. So he understands that she's telling you a big fat fib and that you are allowing her to do something you won't let him do. And he is going to feel very, very unfairly treated. So it really helps teachers' relationships with all students if they, not to mention order in the classroom, if you enforce your rules consistently every time every child no exceptions except for very rare, very exceptional circumstances. Okay, rules and procedures. Take care. See you in the next mini lecture.